0: Raw Ag is your link to the food chain and every episode will take you somewhere along that chain from conception to consumption you will hear from the cutting edge players in Australian agriculture with industry news, unique views and presentations. We can all be better farmers, sustainable regenerative and innovative. We can all be more informed and aware consumers and Raw Ag is your next step in that direction. Brought to you by Ace Radio and Tamania and I'm Kate Mead, and today it is my honour to introduce you to host Tom Gubbins.
1: This is episode 33 of the Raw Egg Podcast. My guest is Jim Wade. Jim is a guru animal nutritionist. He consults technically and is completely independent, and this is very important to him. He has grazing and feed yard clients across Australia. Welcome to the Raw Egg Podcast, Jim, and um, where are you at the moment? I'm a cool and gutter up on the Queensland-New South Wales
2: border. Not near the border directly now because of the uh, they've just let people from down south get in. So I'm uh, working from my home
1: office. Right. Oh, so um, you're allowed. The Mexicans are allowed back.
2: They are today.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You'll all be. Oh, that's that's good to hear, and I'm probably good for us because we quite enjoy going to Queensland, I suppose, to not so much in the summer when the sun's already shining down here. So, Jim, um, tell us what you're uh, an animal nutrition uh, expert, sort of guru, really. You've been doing it for a long time, and um, tell us about uh, how you operate and what you do.
2: I sort of provide a lot of technical support for feed mills, individual farmers. So I'm sort of like, I suppose, the middle man, the guy that has to make it work in the real world. And uh, as a nutritionist, I come up with the recipe that people need for their food or their supplements. So it's, uh, yeah, not my, my wife and I met her six years ago, second wife. Uh, She didn't know what an animal nutritionist was, and she said, what do you do? And I told her that I'd formulated diets for feed mills and farmers of all farm species. She said, oh, so it's a real job. (laughs) I said, yeah, Uh, it's not not like astronaut or something like that. And so uh, it was – she didn't know what a nutritionist was, but she's a Gold Coast girl.
1: Well, it's – you know, that that sort of – I've often wondered whether perhaps we know more about animal nutrition than we do about human nutrition, actually, you know, and um, uh, I sometimes wonder, I think that I'm probably more aware of my livestock nutrition than I'm aware of my own, perhaps, you know, um, and you know, there's some pretty good evidence to show that... um, Humans will, um, are much more likely to complete a course of antibiotics on their pet than they are on themselves, which, um, sort of, um, is, I find very interesting. And, and I, de- I definitely know that when we're looking at animal nutrition, we go into a lot of detail. And you, particularly with us, uh, work on the mineral side, which, um, I find quite intangible actually because we add things to, uh, you send, you know, we get a, Bag that uh, you've teed up for us to co- to come to us, and we put it in the feed, and they they do they do very well. But we're not sure what what's what's actually doing the well bit, if you know what I mean. So tell us a little bit about how you formulate things.
2: Right. Um, so I like to have to measure measure things, and so you have to work out for a start what is their base. Forage or their base diet. So, if it's say if it's you for the class of stock that you're going to feed, you have a goal. So, you need to feed, say, a young weaner that has growing at a certain rate. They would need a certain level of nutrition. A lactating cow needs also a certain level of nutrition, whether it be a dairy cow or a beef cow. And we need to know how much are they going to eat. and how my, the key to it is the intake of digestible nutrients so how much they eat because they can eat a lot of poor quality forage or a, a limited amount of poor quality forage and they'll grow accordingly they'll grow slowly or they'll produce not a lot of milk so we i measure or like to have measure the the base diet and then work out essentially what the goal is of the farmer and the class of stock that you're feeding and so the nutritional requirements of that class of stock you need to know you need to know how much they're eating and the difference is what you need to supplement or put into the, the mineral formula so Tom uh, when I to, to work this out uh, I was told many years ago by both dr. Bob Elliot and Bruce Hamilton from the northern rivers to stay technical and not become too involved in the commercial side of selling stock feed and that sort of thing. So I stayed technical as a consultant. And so I would formulate the diets for the feed mills and I had developed some software to be able to do that. So you need tools to do that measurement. And back in the 1990s, there weren't very many software programs or tools to do that. And when you're dealing with farmers directly, they always seem to ask similar questions and I I developed some software to be able to answer their questions. And so to formulate the diet, the questions that I would ask is, what do I feed the cattle? How much will I eat or do they need? How fast are they going to grow? How many days will it take to reach the target rate? Am I going to make any money? And that will depend on whether the buy and sell price of the cattle is, and the feed cost is the other, like a big a big part of it. So I measure, say the, I will do plant tissue tests, we'll do soil tests, we'll test the water, if the water comes from a bore, May, may do manure tests and in extreme cases the vet may do like a blood test if there's some severe metabolic problems and we need to go that deep but basically the mineral side of things you generally know what the mineral requirements of each class of stock is and then if you know what they're consuming you then know how much minerals they're getting and then Relative to what they need, the difference is what you formulate the, the supplement on. So that you, because otherwise you have to know what are you supplementing, and, and and why, and is the farmer going to make money? Is it going to be too expensive to do? And in some cases, it it is,
1: but. Yeah, so you're trying to get more for less. You sort of look at what they've got and see if there's something that you can add just to make the whole equation better.
2: That's right. So the minerals need to be... When you deliver them in the right ratios, you'll have... The animals will take that up more efficiently so as the uptake of digestible nutrients will occur at an optimum level. You know, uh, you... Did an earlier podcast with Dave Johnson, Jono.
1: Yeah,
2: and I saw him at a at a Saint Albert's College reunion there a couple of say two years ago before the corona, and uh, and he was saying that in livestock production or uh, so when you're dealing with with cattle or livestock, he said the three areas that are all interlocked is there's nutrition is one circle there's genetics is another circle and there's health is another circle and they're all interlocked he said if any one of those is out you'll have compromised animal performance so m- there's management is involved with the nutrition side you can have optimum genetics and get better performance but if the health is poor it'll compromise both the performance of the animal and the genetics then won't compensate. Um, so you have to have all three, and I thought that was pretty sound advice from Jono, that you look at those three simple areas, and if you get any of those wrong, then your performance will suffer, and so will your
1: probability. Yeah. So, you know, just to draw, draw down on that a little bit, uh, we have, I suppose, most farmers only act... When, act um, on minerals when they see something clinical. Um, and, you know, the, those are um, hypercalcemia and um, severe copper deficiency and things like that that, you know, um, are absolutely obvious. But there's a lot going on that's subclinical, isn't there? Like it's probably even more of a problem.
2: Yes, and uh, you don't see that. That's Once you see the clinical uh, deficiencies then you've got real problems and you have a health effect
1: yeah
2: oh a health effect but the area if it's subclinical it might be just less than optimal performance or less than optimal fertility so growth rates are slightly down perform uh, fertility will be down a few things that you don't see when you the time that it takes to deplete their reserves if you give them what they need it will take the same time to correct the problem so sometimes we need to give them uh, something like a, a loose leak or allow them to eat more than they need for a short time to quickly correct the deficiency you know when you get a plant tissue test for most people it means nothing i've had many farmers say i have a test back from forage lab australia the figures mean nothing to me. So I developed a plant tissue test interpretation report. So you just plug the figures in, you then from the NIR test from the, say the grasses or the hay or the silage, but mainly say from pasture, if it's a pasture-based system, which will we mainly do it, uh, we then plug in the NIR results, which will give us our fibre levels, and the fibre, their neutral detergent fibre primarily, will determine how much they can eat. So, 1.1% of their body weight, roughly, of neutral detergent fibre, the animal will be full and stop eating, and it's, it's fairly rough, but things are not that precise in, in cattle uh, production. It'll be it's pretty close. So you, you know from how much they're going to eat, it tells you how much they're going to eat, it tells you the protein, the energy, the, where the energy's come from, starch or sugars or fat. And then the energy intake determines how fast the animals can grow. And once you know how much they're going to eat, you'll know as well whether they're going to gain weight, lose weight, or you know how much. Weight they, they're going to put on, and well, whether they could support a, if it's a lactating cow, whether she can maintain her weight and support a calf, and produce enough milk for that calf. So, the, when you know how much they're going to eat, you then know exactly how many minerals they're going to get, and you know the requirements of that class of stock, for the full mineral suite of minerals, and. Having worked for a vitamin mineral premix company like Raybar, they they supply feed additives. We then know exactly what they require and the difference is what you would, you must meet the deficiency initially in the supplement. But supplements can be a complete feed from a feed mill, it can be a loose lick, it can be a block, it can be a molasses supplement, it could be in water. So there's a whole range of different ways that you can supplement, but it depends on the property, depends on what labour they've got and what infrastructure they've got, and uh, and what the goal is. So if the breeding operation in an extensive property in the north, labour becomes a limitation, and so this type of supplements you need will be different from somebody in Gippsland or the Western districts. So. Each area is, is different, but we also, when we know, I develop some live weight gain prediction models and based on the feed intake from forages, for me, it's a tool that helps me to answer some of those questions that the farmers ask. And they've been surprisingly accurate. and. Yeah. So, what they do is that they can give the farmer some. You can give them.
1: It gives them a goal and an endpoint. Yeah,
2: yeah. If you benchmark, this is where you are. If you say, if you make this change, you'll correct an imbalance, or if you add this additive, or you, or if you're going to say use a byproduct, or you're going to feed them some additional supplements it's going to cost you this much but this is the expected response that you will get and the little tools that i have made seem to be uh they're yeah. pretty accurate
1: so, so um you, you mentioned before that you have to take into consideration the operation the labor the all sorts of different things to make a recommendation and um you know, one of the reasons I particularly like working with you, Jim, is that um, you charge, charge us um, for your time and and then the product uh, is sent to us from a in- completely independent source from you, which is um, really, really, I really like that because um, you're out in the industry finding everything, you're looking at every single product, aren't you, really?
2: Yes, well, uh, if... I was sort of probably told, like, again, by the likes of Bob Elliott and Bruce Hamilton, they said, S- stay technical, uh, stay independent, and because the people who you're dealing with will have people that they like to buy their supplements from, so they can they can buy from whoever they want, and all I do is then I just charge an hourly rate, uh, and we... Uh, we can then get we can tender for products to get it from maybe a couple of different manufacturers. Yep. Or if there's people they like, we send them the formula and they say this is the formula for this property, and the farmer knows exactly what they're getting. So there's no secrets. They know exactly what's in their mineral supplement or their their calf feed or their yep you know paddock finishing feed or production lick or something they know exactly what they're giving their animals so if they happen to do quality control and they get audited they can actually show the auditor this is what these animals are being given so if they're a pcast people they can show them this is the supplement and it complies or if they're organic they can show them what they're getting so that they know that it complies yeah. uh, and that's uh <clears throat> and sometimes there, there, there's people try to s- sell them. There's a lot of salesmen that will maybe want to sell them something and make claims as this product will give you much better fertility. Well, I've done the Repre Right course with Dairy Australia, and I can tell you there are sort of nine nine entire areas. David Beggs actually did one of the, the lectures for us.
1: You no, David's see. another victim of raw ag. <laughs>
2: <laughs> he was a computer guru.
1: Yeah, he's a uh, smart fella.
2: Yeah, so he, uh, but so that's on the dairy side of things.
1: Yeah, I tell, so you, there's all sorts of different recommendations that you can make. I tell you, one of the things that um, loose licks is a lot of people question loose licks or blocks and things, you know, how what percentage of the animals are actually getting them and. Um, we've found i suppose with our we have a magnesium problem in the winter particularly with um in 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 our livestock and we find that um treating hay baking basically making hay medicinal um they all get it much more evenly but what are your feelings about loose licks and things and the percentage of animals that actually uptake
2: well that that is um yeah it's 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 very interesting uh so there are loose licks that are just minerals only that you might have when you've got say lush green pasture uh, or though you're in the wet season in the north so you'll just provide minerals that are lacking that they need that will prevent metabolic problems and stop them becoming less fertile from thousands of plant tests that i've done Australia on the east coast is historically short of copper and zinc and cobalt, and manganese is often high, and iron is often high in the plants. And the macros are variable depending on where you are. And but the loose licks, people might sometimes feed a loose lick, and they say that's no good. They cows won't eat it. Uh, one of the areas that you did mention, sort of from mistakes that. I've come across is where I haven't gathered enough information and the animals have under-consumed or over-consumed a supplement um, because we haven't had the information. But sometimes you can have a deficiency like in the soil. It could be sodium, could be low in the soil and low in the plant and high in the water. And mm-hmm. if you have high salt, and a lot of the blocks and licks often contain high levels of salt, but if there's high sodium in the water and it doesn't have to be salt, it can be sodium bicarbonate, the animals won't eat the lick if it has contained salt. So the most abundant element will stop them from eating the lick. So if there's already an abundance of things that are present in what they're consuming in the grass, if they're also present in the lick, they won't eat it. So you have to try to make the lick sweeter, generally things that are grown, like grain or protein meals, uh, that will make a lick sweeter. Uh, like you've done, say, it's, sometimes it's easy to get the right amount to the animals. Uh, when you sort of know what they need from the plant tests, they will generally come back to eating about the amount that they need, once you've analysed the pasture, the the soil, the water, when you put that together and you see this is what we need and you deliver that, they will eat about that amount. So I've done, I did an example, a chap who has the butchery at Melander in Atherton Tablelands has about five properties, a breeding block, a debula, he's got a coast, block for breeders as well at Innisfail and three blocks at Melanda. And on the Melanda blocks, that's where they sort of grow them out to slaughter them so we can sell them through his butcher at Melanda. And from October to February, we gave them a loose lick through the wet season from top stock at Mareeba, where I'm the nutritionist, and they were supposed to eat 150 grams per head per day and when they rang up the office to see the total amount that they'd supplied from October to February against the uh, number of animals on a daily basis, I think the average was within 10 grams of what we had formulated the supplement for. There was like 141 grams per day. They were less than 10 grams. We got it very, very close. But he has that, di- I have a diagnostic approach And he follows that, he measures everything, we then formulate it to what they need. And after an initial, sometimes an initial engorgement period, if they are a bit deficient, they will then come back to eating about the right amount. So so there there is some nutritional wisdom that they have, but if there are elements in their diet that are present and, and at high levels, In the lick as well they often they won't eat the lick or if they are very deficient they'll gorge and eat a
0: lot
1: and and so your job is to perhaps find those ones that they're uh, that are high in their diet and take them out of the lick is that and and so that um, they become the, the lick becomes more appetising. I can't imagine how it can be appetising but they uh, the animals actually do choose which elements. I mean, I've heard of, um, I don't know if you do any of this, but putting different minerals in different licks in the same uh, paddock. Um,
2: yeah, we, we did that at Kugati up near Mataranka in the Northern Territory. The chap had the uh, individual elements up there so that's a big extensive property south of Mataranka. And they would at times go hard for sulphur, for example, for say two months, and at other times they would regularly go for phosphorus because they're in phosphorus deficient country. But there was salt available, there was lime available, there was trace elements, uh, and you could have uh, a non-protein nitrogen like something like like urea. Uh, you don't things like copper and zinc and the trace elements you don't have them individually because they can't consume the small amount that they need. So that's usually put as with a, say a protein meal or the pre is normally put with something that they will consume at a little bit higher rate. But you, you can have that individual selection of, of minerals in a loose lick form in a special, uh, sort of like a feeding bin with several compartments but that's not a very common, it's not a real common practice.
1: Because it's so expensive.
2: Uh, Yeah, and you've got to have a huge amount of stock on hand for each individual item, where you could just buy what you need. And in the territory, practicality, as I mentioned, those guys don't, they might do a lick run every two or three weeks or every couple of weeks because the properties are so big they might just drop out a bulk bag and cut the top out of the bag, and then let the cattle eat out of the top of the bag. Yeah. And so, and if it rains, some of them they'll actually go hard, so like a giant block in a way. And then when it dries, it becomes friable again, and they start eating it again. Uh, but often we've seen uh, wet season licks that are not appropriate. That are. It'll be there for years because they don't they don't need it, and some of the even the Olsen's indicator blocks, the ones they don't need, they don't really eat at all. So you you know that well they don't need that particular elements. But if they measured it, uh, we did some work up near Moranbar and one of the stations up there, and they had the indicator blocks. And the the formulation for the loose leak that we come up with was almost exactly what they were eating with the blocks. But we just did it a different way from measuring the plant water and soil tests.
1: So, Jim, um, I've often thought that in Australia, if we t- took all the fences out there, the beef cattle had herd up and move up and down the uh, in inland um area from summer to winter probably on their way down to us here now i would imagine um and then once once the winters come here they'd be on their way back up north a bit like the bison in north america but we go going to put them in single paddocks and expect them to do well your job is to try and make all those paddocks i suppose um the full smorgasbord that they need we in the winter down here really battle nitrates um, and we sort of know that it's causing us um, problems. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what too much um, nitrate does to the animal and in the rumen?
2: Well, it's a, yeah, nit- nitrates, we, well, we can get around that. The plant tends to accumulate nitrates usually when it's fairly dry, and if you've got like a... The temperate pastures are often very high in uh, protein, potassium, uh, can be short of magnesium because the magnesium is not as readily available, but the nitrates, it's a bit like what you get with urea toxicity in a way, so the animal becomes very agitated, but you need sugars to sort of correct it, to stop that reaction from occurring to cause... Than to get like the toxicity, ammonia toxicity, or nitrate toxicity. So, there's sort of a soluble carbohydrate where you're sort of short of sugars, you will probably be more inclined to have nitrate problems. Or if you have dry standing, like some straw or effective fiber, that may help to dilute the effect of the pasture but sometimes they don't want to eat the straw because they've got such an abundance of pasture they will just eat the pasture only because it's so good but you need some sort of ferment like sugar will help to reduce the incidence of nitrate we fixed up by dairy cows it becomes a problem sometimes with dairy cows as well if you have like molasses supplements then you wouldn't see a, a nitrate problem so much probably need to look at the the chemistry of the sequence of events that occurs but i know that you provide well maybe in simple terms we're probably providing a an energy source for the rumen microbes to be able to utilize some mop up some of that excess ammonia i know that i can give you the sequence of events by breaking nitrate nitride and having a like going to ammonia and where the animal has to ammonia is very soluble so it goes into the bloodstream through the rumen papillae and has to be detoxified in the liver and excreted uh i just can't remember what the precise chemistry use of that just off the top of my head but I would be able to get back to you on that sorry about
1: that <laughs> no, that's all right Jim No, you' you've answered the question anyway so because um, so some little things can make a big difference um, this year you um, sent us a formula um, because we we're having trouble with the bulls being agitated in the paddock in paddocks and and, uh, you know, almost within days, actually, of us formulating the mixusantis and mixing it into a little bit of hay, basically just as a carrier, because we didn't need to feed the feed because we had plenty. Um, but the animals who, um, ate this and um, their temperament changed. We probably need to understand again a bit more about this in humans, perhaps. But um, magnesium actually is known in humans as something that um, is good to give to if, if you're stressed or have muscle soreness. But it definitely had a very, very su- substantial effect on, on. And we could see that as soon as we, the bulls went into a difficult place on the property and we couldn't actually get the feed to them, then they then they started getting agitated again, and it was quite obvious. What does magnesium and perhaps calcium do in the nervous system?
2: Calcium makes muscles contract. So they're both involved with smooth muscle function. So calcium is needed for a muscle contraction. Magnesium is necessary to make the muscle relax. So the relaxation phase of a muscle contraction requires magnesium, but magnesium can be locked up by high soluble protein It is often in ryegrass and pescue and urea-fertilised pastures. And high potassium interferes with magnesium absorption and high lipids. So there's fairly high levels in the annual ryegrasses now. Lipid levels are pretty high. So a combination of all three of those can interfere with magnesium absorption. So there may be, on a plant test, look like there's reasonable magnesium, but it may not be available and if it's not available, it will be uh, the animal will get very agitated because the muscle can't relax. So uh, we've seen the, an entire dairy herd run to the dairy. Uh, I've had examples in the Western Districts of uh, many years ago. A chap had a thousand cows, and he said, a third of my cows are scouring on the milkers," and and he was milking a thousand, so three hundred cows were scouring on his workers who didn't want to milk anymore. But what had happened is that they fertilised with potash, potassium, and urea two paddocks, and then it rained. And then they forgot about it, and they went back over the whole farm two weeks later. When the animals graze those two paddocks, they were very, very agitated. So you'll see animals who will be uh, loose, ex- and they'll be just very, very agitated. And bulls, you don't really want them to be agitated. You can also get a tetany symptoms from uh, endophytes, high endophyte levels in the rye grasses. Plants that have high endophyte grasses tend to be very vigorous. So when they're selected for growth, they can be high in endophytes and the endophyte fungi, which is in the tissue of the plant, can also cause a a tetany. And you sometimes might use a mycotoxin binder that might help to overcome those sort of uh, tetany symptoms. So they're not always magnesium related. Sometimes it's an endophyte related uh, agitation, but magnesium in
1: Victoria always seems to work. So, Jim, uh, you have a very holistic approach. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so I, I sort of like to look at,
2: uh, A, like see, see what the management is of the farm and the goals of the farmers and look at not just, say, putting a Band-Aid or something or relying on silver bullets. We, we look at the, the the soils, the plants, the grazing management, the infrastructure, all those things, are very important when you're coming up with a recommendation for a farmer. And uh, and so I think that I've seen properties degrade Tom with set stocking, for example. So you set stocking, you can deplete the number of different pasture species. When you have uh, sort of a regenerative farming philosophy, I've sort of had some work with some very good people with regard to regenerative farming practices and grazing management. And I know that it takes, you can destroy a farm in as little as three or four years, and you can restore it in about 18 months, once you implement some of those new practices. And so that's part, the management is part of the the deal and utilizing what you've got and try to get better efficiency. Can I give you one example of a chap whose father-in-law had a 4,000 acre property north of Rocky. He took over and he had a set stocking and he used to run a thousand breeders and get 500 calves a year. That chap now runs 700 breeders and he gets 620 calves a year. So there's a breeder efficiency that we see through, and he has a different grazing management. So we will put things in larger groups and then move around the farm and give paddocks a rest and has a, a large number of pasture species and very good pasture cover. And we've seen many, in, in I've seen in the north, people that have introduced some of those uh, grazing management practices where you do give some paddocks a rest and you have more of a rotational uh, grazing philosophy, which you guys always have.
1: Yeah, what does it do? Because um, you know we're actually, uh, you know, as as you know, going into more and more species in pastures. And um, um, what what does it what does it do for your side of um, the equation? Uh, in animal health and uh, animal um, nutrition, sorry.
2: When you have more species, they'll you'll find that each of those, you, you could have some, often you'll have some legumes, sometimes you'll have even some weeds, you'll have a range of pasture plants that will deliver different nutrients. And when you have that, the, when you do your your testing of your pasture, you need less supplements when you have it right you need less supplements which is also quite a good goal to have which then you don't have the costs that other farmers have
1: and you see you see this as a animal you know a nutrition specialist you see this across variations of management techniques yes yeah
2: i I see this and I've seen it and I've got examples of it I've got case studies of it, uh, where we've, you know, we've improved. You'll see it, it it flows through in, you'll see higher heifer weights, you'll see higher weaning weights, you'll see higher reproductive performance. So, your pre-test results will be higher and your uh, branding or weaning rate is higher than the year before. And you'll see those that go in calf you'll see a different weight for them but you'll see improved efficiencies where you and because when they go into a paddock you the animals are going into a big body of feed either every few days it could be every week or every two weeks they're going into a big body of feed all the time and they usually select the the items that they like the best is what they'll select first if you have them set stocked, they eat all the good stuff and leave all the, the less palatable, poorer quality grasses behind, and you end up with a paddock full of low, uh, low quality pasture. If you've got a few different species, you'll have some legumes which have a deeper root system, you'll have some, sometimes you'll have weeds, and when we've tested the weeds, we did it at Wilmont Pastoral up near Ebor. We did some tests and the first thing the cattle did, they went straight to these tall weeds. And we thought, wonder what they're looking for there. And they had a very deep taproot. And when we did the plant test, we took a test of that and we had pasture tests. The thing that that pasture on that property was lacking was in those weeds. And they go there first, hit them hard, demolish them and then they just go and graze normally and they had a, a rotational grazing program and we actually know that there was a couple of hundred grams difference in growth rate even without any supplementation between rotational grazing and the average uh, the, the previous practice of set stocking the property. so there's 200 we, we know there's two to 300 grams a day on that property. Just from doing rotational grazing,
1: and yeah, that's so, that's amazing.
2: The that's, have the things that are lacking in the grass. Yeah. So they sometimes are necessary.
1: Why I sort of asked you that is that we, you know, we hear these, and I'm quite convinced that you know this is happening. Uh, I asked you because, you know, you're an animal nutritionist from another field, observing it, from as from a sort of a clinic from a clinical sense. Um, technical sense, and you see that difference, which is, you know, that's quite significant. If you see that difference, um, and so that's that's really that's quite something. We're getting to the end of the podcast, Jim. So, what what are the um, what are the mistakes you've made um, in your career or in your in your development Ooh. so far?
2: <laughs> well, we always make mistakes, but the, the, I suppose the area. You can't afford to make, in in my position, too many mistakes, but the area that I have found is that where I haven't gathered enough information to then make the recommendation and the animals have, you've formulated the supplement, so if it's like in the way of a loose lick, and they've either under-consumed the lick or they've grossly over-consumed the lick, and if it's, say, contained urea, that can actually end up to be quite dangerous. So, therefore, it's very important to get in my position very important to get enough information to make a sound recommendation without it causing any problems because the last thing you want to do is cause animals to die there's there's no money in dead ones
1: what about uh, some of the masterpieces and i'm sure that you've got quite a few you would have um, but what are the masterpieces that you've produced
2: right because back in the 90s, there was limited tools to to help formulate uh, supplements. And uh, um, there was complex programs that were difficult for farmers to understand. So I made, I think, some practical on-farm Excel-based programs. I know that my feed mill program, 18 feed mills and supplement companies are using that program. I have my plant tissue test interpretation report, some live weight gain models, which are uh, good at, at one page, pretty much get all the information that they need. It's very simple. I think that that's been very good. And even some consultants that have gone out on their own that I've helped them to go on their own have provided those tools for them. They've been able to do a good job and from usually those guys are sort of in Western or Southern New South Wales and Victoria. And so I think the Masterpiece has been developing some of the tools that enables me to answer the farmers' questions and give them the correct supplement that they need so that they then can make a decision with a high degree of certainty. Uh, the other thing that I often, with my NQ dry tropics workshops and cherub workshops, we have promoted uh, just even this, this year, uh, creep feeding. Uh, and I think that that's been, this year's been really good because we've seen some really good results with the, the, the creep feeding, where you've had first calvers uh, produce a calf and they're 20 kilos on average above what they would normally do, uh, or higher than calves from the later parity cows. Uh, we've had several results up north that have had 190 plus kilo weaners, and the normal average weaning weight is 170.
1: It's a real office there, too. <laughs> I can hear all the messages yeah. coming in. Yeah. <laughs> Which is good. Yeah, sorry about that. No, that's all right. Oh,
2: yeah. so, great feeding. So, that was,
1: a, yeah. I, I found that that was
2: really good. Uh, so, that, that, that to me, I think, is something that I tend to have recommended. And, but, it pays, it largely pays where you have animals where their lactation potential is limited by either the season, the age of the animal, the size of the animal. Uh, often your first calf cows and that sort of thing need a bit of help. And so the, uh, the creep feeding has seemed to have worked, particularly here in Queensland where we're often in drought or the first carvers do it a bit tough.
1: Yeah, and so who are the mentors, who are the people that have steered you in the right direction?
2: Well, years ago when I first went to work for Raybar, so we developed some manufacturing for vitamin and mineral premixes. So Dr. Bob Elliott, he was uh, working for Roche at the time and he provided a lot of guidance for me in the early days when I first started to work for a vitamin and mineral manufacturing company and and he did a lot of work up in the far north, so his knowledge of beef cattle and dairy cattle in both Victoria and in North Queensland was uh, was invaluable. And uh, and he basically told me to steer, stay, stay away from say quality control and management, and go into stay technical. And Bruce Hamilton, who's a dairy nutritionist from Northern Rivers, he said the same. He said try to stay in the technical area. And that's what I've tended to do. So remain independent and be... And Mick Alexander uh, from Grazing Best Practice. I got a lot from him on his, uh, and Bart Davidson, their agronomists, their soil health and regenerative farming practices. uh, I think have also been excellent for me because it again, fits in with my holistic approach uh, I think it's very important to have the whole understanding of the soils, the plants, and the animals. Because it does, when you get it right, it flows through to health, you see better reproductive performance, better breeder efficiency, it sort of works out. And these guys were, they all have a bit a part to play in my understanding of yeah. formulating supplements.
1: Well, Jim. Thank you very much for coming on to the Raw Ag podcast today. Um, I know you're very passionate, and your attention to detail is uh, second to none. You, and uh, and the independence of the way you conduct yourself is very, very important in, for me and that in the industry you're in. Um, you know, the more you when you ask around the traps about Jim Wade, um, I think that you're the consultant's consultant. And you have so many clients and so many people talk very, very highly of your advice. So thank you very much for being on the RORAG podcast today. Um, and if anyone needs any nutritional advice, I highly recommend that Wade Agricultural is a good spot to stop.
2: Oh, thanks for that, Tom. <laughs> yeah, I really appreciate that.
0: If you're enjoying the RORAG podcast, make sure you rate and review on your favourite podcast app.